0: Let's test your audio. For our audio test, we usually like to have our guests name five of something. So, name five of your favorite farmers market ingredients.
1: Celts, green almonds, heirloom tomatoes, peaches, and apples.
0: Love it. You sound great. Let's do it. <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Five years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or, like the chefs we feature, make a difference in your community. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. If you're like me and you enjoy a good gin and tonic or Negroni, or maybe you're a martini person, regardless, seeing a bunch of different gin bottles at a bar, restaurant, or liquor store can be a little daunting. Ford's gin was crafted by bartenders for bartenders and at-home bartenders alike to make a really good gin cocktail. Simon Ford noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all of these drinks while keeping it at an accessible price? Thank you, Simon Ford. Speaking of bartenders, you're going to want to check out our Beyond the Drink series, which will air every other week right here on Beyond the Plate, also brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. I can go on and on about Ford's, but lucky for you, I won't. You can go to Season 6, Episode 12 of the podcast and hear an awesome bonus episode we did, if I do say so myself, with Simon Ford of Ford's Gin. By the way, our executive producer Ian's been listening in because when he hears the word gin, his ears start ringing. It's a hidden talent he has. (laughs) What's up, Ian? (laughs) Is that obvious, Cappy? are your ears ringing? They always are ringing when you say gin, martini. And actually, true story, this weekend I went to get Ford's gin, asked the guy at the store, and he said, "Uh, that's good gin, it's right over there. So that made a good Saturday martini night. But, you know, we could talk about Ford's gin all night, and uh, I think we should actually get to the episode all right, let's do that. But one more thing. One of the things we love about our partners, Ian, Harriet Beyond the Plate, as you know, is how they all give back. And Ford's does so within the bartending community. Makes sense. They've also supported events and fundraisers. So I mean it. They always have the bartending community in mind. To learn more about Ford's Gin, go to fordsgin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. For its gin, we thank you. One more thing. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch. You can find a link in your podcast player or go to our website, beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, hoodies, and more. Again, that's beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest is a Swiss chef, author, father, and owner of Make It Nice, the New York-based hospitality group behind 11 Madison Park and 11 Madison Home. He spent time in some of the best Swiss hotels and restaurants before earning his first Michelin star, and then came to the US, San Francisco to be exact, before making his way to New York. He's received many accolades and is the author of 11 Madison Park, The Cookbook, I Love New York, Ingredients and Recipes, The Nomad Cookbook, and 11 madison park the next chapter please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate for our season eight premiere with a chef who once held the number one spot on the world's 50 best restaurant list chef daniel holm
1: how are you andrew good to see you and to be with you today
0: likewise thanks for being with us we're excited to kick off a Heck of a season coming everyone's way. By the way, congrats on 11 Madison Home. I was extremely excited merely minutes ago today to see that you're delivering nationwide and already put an order in.
1: Oh, uh, thank you. And
0: on your 100,000 meals in Queensbridge through the 11 Madison truck, which we'll talk a little bit more about. All right, Chef. I don't know if this is a personal thing. I noticed for you, I don't know why. Maybe it is for me in some way, but I keep going back to this Instagram post of yours where you're walking down the street with your arms around your daughters and you're wearing that sweatshirt they gifted you that says too big to fail. And I want to know where they got it, but they got it in support of when you were reopening EMP during some uncertain times. And I just want to share that beginning of that caption. It says, the last year has been a whirlwind. It has been a year of immense learning, both culinarily and academically. Stepping into this new chapter came mostly from a creative place and Of course, also the need for the world to evolve toward a plant forward future. Our announcement hit a nerve globally. The scale of the reactions that followed, I was unprepared for. Strong. I love it. Tell me what that means to you, too big to fail.
1: Well, it was a really sweet gift of my daughters. And of course, in your kids' eyes, you can never fail. And that's a beautiful thing. And it is a sweater that they got at at an art exhibition by Barbara Kruger, and it was really a comment, I think, on the financial system. (laughs) So it wasn't about me, but in that moment, that felt really great. It was when, since the reopening of 11 Madison Park, going fully plant-based, a major shift And, you know, we definitely have received our fair share of criticism and it was sort of my daughter's gift to me after we we got one of those.
0: I mean, you have to carry a lot of weight on your shoulders as many people do in their own way, but you make these like audacious, enormous business decisions. And you've made quite a few through probably in life in general, but EMP specifically, you weren't prepared for the reactions that followed for that recent one. What's that like for you? Like, how do you go into making a decision of that magnitude? What's your process?
1: You're calling it a business decision. And I think that never crosses my mind. It is actually never really driven by by that. It's really driven by what's in my heart and sort of where I want to use my time on and my creativity on. And we have this amazing platform and this amazing team of some of the most talented professionals. And during the pandemic, it became clear that while a lot of the food system is really challenged and we need to find new ways, it also became beca- clear to me that My language is cooking and food. During the pandemic, I used that language to give back and to cook meals for people in need. And it was so powerful and so touching. And I was so happy. I was happier than I was in a long time. And when I received all these accolades of the stars and the number ones and all of this, it was some of my least happy time professionally because I was pulled in so many different directions and mostly away from my craft. And so during the pandemic, I was really reconnecting with the beauty of cooking and the power and what it can do. And so when we reopened, I just felt like the responsibility to use this platform And to use our gift of creating and be creative with food to push into a new direction. And, you know, showing that some of our ideas of what luxury is or what fine dining is are quite old ideas. And you don't need to go very deep on on your research to realize that things are changing dramatically and quickly. There is now meat and fish grown in laboratories. We have the fake meats of the world and tons of money is getting poured into it scientists spending their lives on trying to find that answer and for me i just want to add our creativity to this as well and hopefully you know if this is where we're going let's try to make it as delicious and as magical and as beautiful as it can be and having been doing this work now for a year and a half and since we've been reopening but even Prior, so almost three years, I've been thinking about this and working with this. I can tell you that it is so liberating and so beautiful. And cooking with vegetables is the most incredible thing. And we're not missing out really on anything. And I'm grateful that I had the courage to make this decision. And looking back, I'm almost shocked that I was able to do it. Because our restaurant was well known for duck and lobster and foie gras and caviar and not for vegetables. And of course we've always worked with them, but that wasn't what we were known for. We on one hand really left everything behind to go into this new chapter.
0: I love that perspective. So when you hit that nerve globally, what's your reaction? to that. Like, how do you handle those? I was going to say, how do you handle those challenges, but maybe you don't look at it as a challenge.
1: I think I was completely naive. It wasn't such a big thing when I made the decision. It was just like, okay, the world is going that way. Maybe we need to find new ways. I believed that 11 Madison Park was in a unique position because I believe that we are selling an experience. We are not selling food on a plate necessarily. It's people come to us, they go see a Broadway show one night and one night they eat at 11 Madison Park. And so if it's truly about an experience, then does it really matter what is on the plate, if it's delicious and if it tells a story? My opinion was it didn't matter and therefore this actually can work. If it can work for us, then maybe down the line it can work for others because I think that the conversation and the feeling about value really needs to change. I think we're not valuing vegetables in the same way as we do proteins and that is wrong. And I hope that that conversation can change and people start to understand that there's so much value in vegetables and so therefore people are willing to pay for it. I thought a lot about the car industry. I thought about the Toyota Prius. And I thought about the Tesla and I thought about, you know, Toyota Prius was the first hybrid car that came out 25 years ago. Groundbreaking, way ahead of its time. And it's still around and it's incredible, but it's not the most sexy car. I don't think Toyota Prius could have changed the world like Tesla did. I think when Tesla came to be, it was about creating an amazing car that happens to be electric. I think it wasn't So much about only being electric. It was just like a contemporary car, of course, is electric. So it's like a contemporary restaurant is not using meat. It's just about being a great restaurant. And I think if we can change how we value things then I think this can open a lot of doors that are really important. I had no idea, like, the nerve you're talking about. I realized that that's what happened, but I was overwhelmed by how people reacted to this news As for me, it was just trying to find a creative solution to show a different way. You know, it became very polarizing and political. And I am not equipped with all of that. I'm just a chef that knows how to cook, that has experienced the food system through what arrives at our back door on a daily basis. Not much more than that, but I do know even in that very limited window, it's has changed dramatically. What's been arriving over the last 30 years has changed. Certain things are no longer available. Things used to be wild and now they're farm-raised. Things come from different places than they used to come and they don't taste the same. If my job is to really find the best ingredients that I can really stand behind it. I think in a way I did have to speak up somehow and I'm guilty. I should have done this a long time ago in a way because things have been changing for a long time. The pandemic gave me this window of stepping back and think about my life and think about what makes me happy. I think using food as a language was one of those.
0: I love that bond you must share with your daughters and how they see you and everything. What's the difference between Daniel Hum the chef and Daniel Hum the dad?
1: I think I am much more revered as a chef than I am as a dad. (laughs) When I'm at home cooking for my daughters, which I have three of them, they are very critical and not holding back at all, which I love, and it's how it should be. But of course, I try to spend as much time with them as possible, but it is a challenge to find the balance of the profession and being a father as well.
0: All right, let's go back to where it started. Tell us about Strangelbach, Switzerland.
1: You're right. That's where I was born. Describe
0: Strangelbach.
1: It is a town that has about 1,500 people living in it. It's a farm town in the middle of nowhere, but very idyllic. And of course, Switzerland is beautiful, magical in that sense. I'm grateful that I had a childhood in a very simple and pretty pure sort of way. I didn't cook as a kid, but I did experience some quality ingredients. Carrots that were freshly dug out off the ground that day and then making a salad and it's just like experiencing how much the quality matters versus when you go get a bag of carrots in the supermarket and those carrots were probably harvested three weeks ago and just tastes completely different. I think there was a lot of respect to, towards the ingredients too. I grew up eating meat, but there was a real respect towards it. Like we would eat meat on Sundays like, let's say if we had a chicken, we knew exactly where the chicken was from. It was from a neighboring farm. And then we would get the chickens on like Thursday or so. And then leading up to the weekend, we would use the innards and put it over a salad. or And then, of course, then we had the chicken. And then the day after, we would use the bones and everything to make a stock. So it was like a real, There, there was a beautiful thing that I took away from I didn't realize it at that time, but it really shaped me the way I look at the ingredients.
0: Interesting. Who cooked most of the meals, mom, dad?
1: It was my mom. My mom was an incredible cook. It was really like I think it was half of her day that it was about
0: creating the meals. Are there any like smells or Issues that still bring you back to your childhood memories?
1: All of it is rooted from that time. I think Albert Camus has a quote about this very thing about there are a few things in your life and it's food, it's music, it's art, it's love that really open you up for the first time in your life. And then for the rest of your life you're trying to recreate that moment. And I think that is very True with food. And in a way, like today, I'm cooking in New York City, and we have an audience from all over the world. And sort of, I have to, because I think for me, I'm having a dialogue with our guests through the food. It's a conversation that we're having. And I do need to connect to the guest on that kind of level to get their attention and to start having a dialogue. And what's interesting is that actually in most cultures, we're sharing similar flavor profiles of certain dishes. There is a similarity of the very comforting foods of many different cultures. For me, as we're presenting something more creative and something you might not have before, I think very much about how am I gonna connect with you? Cause I'm not gonna connect with you with this creative thing that you can't really place anywhere. You're gonna be like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but that's it. Like, I really wanna to touch you in your heart. So then you're really open to be present.
0: Yeah, I love it. As a kid in this small town, what types of things did you do? Like, what were you up to?
1: I was not a very enthusiastic student. There was a story in like my second grade where I was in art class and we all had to paint a house and we got a certain size paper. I went up to the teacher and I said, well, the house I want to paint is not going to fit on this paper. And the teacher was pretty upset and said, oh, go back to your chair and Do what everyone else is doing. And I was so upset that I drew a house four times the size of that paper on the table and everywhere. And I got sent home. And my parents were freaking out because they wanted me to do well in school, and I I wasn't. And then I was sent to a child therapist. I was lucky, and again, to this kind of pure way of of growing up. Obviously, you know, Carl Jung, but Carl Jung is Swiss, and so there were a lot of Jungian sort of therapists around, and, and I was so lucky to be sent to this woman. And I had to go see her every Wednesday afternoon. And I would, ended up cooking with her. And it was like this you know, unthinkable for today's world. But it was small town. It was beautiful. And one day she was like, why did they send you here? And I told her this story about the house. And then she was upset. And, she, and we went to an art store. And we bought like the biggest roll of paper. And we rolled it onto the living room in the house and I drew the biggest house I could think of. And she said, don't ever let anyone tell you that there isn't a bigger paper. And for me, that moment I was like 11 or 12 and that was the first time I felt like the sky's the limit. Anything is possible. And then after I went to a Rudolf Steiner school, which is a Waldorf school here and never really had any grades. And then I left school when I was 14 to pursue a career as a cyclist because I had a talent in sports. I was running cross country and I was running the national championship and I was doing really well. And eventually I wanted to ride a bike and I really wanted to ride a bike because the bike would take me further away from home. And so I could explore all of Switzerland And eventually I rode competitively. That's how I was able to leave school. And then I did that for a few years.
0: How old were you when you started riding competitively?
1: I mean, I started racing when I was like 11, 12, and then all the way till like 23. I moved away from home fairly when I was 14, in fact. Where'd you move? I moved to Zurich, which was like the city, the closest city.
0: And where'd you live?
1: I fell in love with this girl who was four years older than me. She had a little bit of a career of her own already, like she was working and she lived between London and Zurich. And I was living with her, ended up being with her for 12 years, which is beautiful. And have also a daughter with her. That's when it's sort of like my... Eyes to the world started to open up. I was cycling first all over Switzerland and then all over Europe and had a girlfriend who lived between London and Zurich. So somehow, I guess, very young, I was like, wanted to explore the world.
0: When did you start to have an interest in food?
1: I kind of always had. So I think growing up with this kind of cooking, then I also had a lot of bad foods When I started living by myself, I started to realize, oh, the food isn't as good as it was at home. And then when I went to other people's homes, often the food wasn't as good either. And so I started to think about it. Okay, how can we make myself a meal that that is enjoyable. And so I was always, when, I'm, when I was traveling, I was always about like, okay, if we're in London, what's the thing to have in London? And at that time, there wasn't much I have to tell you about. In Italy or every region I would go to, I'm like, okay, what is this place famous for? And I want to have the best version of that. And so food was always so important. And of course, as an athlete, I was always hungry because I was riding the bike so much. And you didn't cook as like with your mom when you were a kid or you did? I never cooked with my mom. I cooked after in the off seasons to really make money. It was the only place a 15-year-old would get a job. And so I was working in a kitchen a few days a week to make some money.
0: Okay, we've had a number of chefs on the podcast who have these young apprenticeship stories, if you will. Real apprenticeship stories, I'll say. Yeah. Like the Wolfgang Puck, Ludo Lefebvre, Jacques Pepin, and some others. They started this journey like in the kitchen really young and clearly you did too. I think you said you were 15 or 14, 15. Yeah. Did someone specifically encourage you to do this or was it like you just said more of you needed to make money?
1: It was really out of necessity to make money. And in the beginning, I remember I was so lucky because I was working in this place where the chef was really enthusiastic about cycling. So somehow he really took me under his wing. And in the beginning he said, like, oh, let me show you how to butcher a chicken or let me show you how to make a consomme. And I was like, it's totally fine. I'm like it's like a waste of your time. Just, I can clean these potatoes or these carrots, but he was pretty persistent and I did slowly fall in love with it. I slowly really started noticing a deep passion for it and I'm immensely grateful.
0: Is there a moment, like you recall, that you wanted to pursue it more or become a chef?
1: There was one moment where I was traveling with my cycling team and we were in the French part of Switzerland and there was a restaurant that was quite well known. After like some weeks of racing, we would stop there and we were invited to this dinner at this restaurant that had three Michelin stars at that time. We were invited as like the team and we were sitting in the kitchen. And we had this meal and I just remember all these chefs running around us with these white uniforms and the chef's hats. And I could really feel that it was like, it felt like a sport, like a team sport and the attention to detail and the energy and like, and I was really for the first time I saw a kitchen like that. And it kind of made me think, oh, it's kind of like what we do. It's kind of like a sport, they're athletes.
0: How old were you when you had
1: that meal? I was like 18 years old, yeah.
0: And so you start to take it seriously.
1: It was really like when I was 23, I had a really bad accident. It was an accident that I was in a coma for nine days. It was life-threatening crash. When I came out of it, it just became so clear to me that number one, I wasn't good enough to be like one of the great cyclists in the world. It's dangerous. It's It was also kind of a dark time in cycling during that time. And I also didn't love it as much anymore. So then somehow I was like, wow, I think I should put my energy really into cooking. And then that's what I did. And I think leading up to it, like when I had this magical meal at 18 years old. I started to spend a little bit more time in the kitchen. So when I made that decision to put it all into it, I didn't start from scratch. At that time, I've already worked in kitchens for like nine years. But then I was really willing to go all in. And I looked at it like an athlete. I was like, okay, these are the rankings. There's Michelin, there's the local papers, and these are the best chefs, and this is how you become one of the best chefs. And so I just started putting my head down and sort of started climbing this mountain.
0: And so you keep working in kitchens, rise up in the rank, if you will. You earn your first Michelin star when you're 24 years old at Gasthaus. Zoom goop in St. Gallen.
1: Speaking about not being prepared, going plant based, I wasn't prepared to the reaction. Receiving a Mishnah star, I was by no means prepared at all. I mean, I just really started out and I had no cuisine of my own. And I knew working hard was never an issue for me. So I put a lot of energy behind it. But I don't know if I had like a particular talent or I definitely had no repertoire of my own dishes. It was so overwhelming. I definitely wasn't ready for it at all.
0: Did you ever worry when you peak, I'm using loose air quotes here, so young or quickly how you were going to maintain that standard?
1: No, I didn't put so much weight into these rankings. I didn't feel like I was anywhere close to peaking. I mean, this was like a little moment of glory there. The next day you go back in the kitchen and it's not as glorious as, you know, you don't really hold on to these things too much. I mean, no, I didn't feel that was a peak by no imagination.
0: Man, I just had a story flash before my eyes of being in culinary school and a chef instructor coming into our class asking who made a certain dish. And I raised my hand and they said it was perfect. It was great. And everyone was cheering. And my chef instructor in the class said, get back on the line, Kaplan. You're only as good as your last dish. I'm like, damn (laughs) it. The buzz went away
1: quick. Yeah, that's (laughs) it. That's exactly it.
0: So in in 2003, you moved to San Francisco to be executive chef of Campton Place. Why the move?
1: It was so random in a way. It was someone who ate at the restaurant in Switzerland who had a friend who was running a hotel in San Francisco. They were looking for a chef and I was put in touch with the general manager of that hotel, who also is Swiss. And uh, he said, oh, do you want to come to San Francisco? At that point, I'd never been to America. I didn't think of America as like a culinary destination either. At that point, it wasn't on my radar at all. And then I said, probably not. But then he was very insistent. He eventually invited me to come over. And then, you know, I arrived and he picked me up at the airport. And for two weeks, we went to Che the french laundry napa valley gary denko was a restaurant at that time went to the farmer's market experienced the sourdough breads from san francisco my mind was blown away how incredible this place is
0: was there anyone on like in switzerland where you were that was helping guide you or mentoring you through it or was it mainly this Swiss gentleman. No, it
1: just was total coincidence. It just fell in my lap. I went with it. I felt like it'd be good to explore. But then when I was in San Francisco for two weeks, I knew so clearly that I had to be here.
0: What three words would you use to describe yourself in 2003?
1: I mean, I was pretty uh, like fearless, very uh, hardworking, focused. And it came, I can tell you, it came... I had a 12-year relationship with the love of my life that came to an end. She decided to end it. And so it was so painful that it kind of motivated me to go to San Francisco. And then I just really dove into work sort of out of pain and i knew that work was something i was doing for myself no one could like take it from me and so it was really yeah and i i think still today i the biggest thing i want to learn is how to be creative without having pain because it always has come from this place and sometimes it has to be so painful so you can actually accept for the work to be great And sometimes when it wasn't painful, you're like, ah, I don't know if that new money is really that great. It's a funny thing.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I was gonna, I was thinking like, would you be in this position if you didn't go through that? Or have these different pain points? I mean, I went through something the other week that bugged the crap out of me, you know, it was on my mind, on my mind, and I know I had to go through it to get to the next step, if you will. Yeah. What three words would you use to describe yourself today?
1: Oh, my God, this is so hard. I don't know. Well, I'm very passionate, continuously, you know, I think thoughtful, more thoughtful, passionate, thoughtful, and probably still competitive.
0: So... Three years after establishing yourself in San Francisco, you got the good reviews and whatnot. You moved to New York to be the chef of Eleven Madison Park. But correct me if I'm wrong here. You weren't recruited at the time by Danny Meyer himself. Can you tell us that story when Richard Corain ate at Camden Place? Were you familiar with Danny at the time?
1: I never heard of him. I was in the country for two years and also even my English was much more limited. And I was here for less than a year when I was nominated by the James Beard Foundation as one of their rising star chefs. And that's when I first traveled to New York. And I remembered that first visit to New York. I just knew that I just fell in love with the energy and the city. And I knew that after that first visit that I wanted to be in New York eventually. But then I went back to San Francisco, and Richard Corrine, who was Danny's partner, he came and ate, and he loved it, and he said, "Oh, we have this restaurant, and Eleven Madison Park, and maybe you should think about moving to New York." So I was kind of open to hear more. And then a few weeks later, Danny Meyer, he's like, "Oh, Danny Meyer is my partner, and he is going to come." And and so then he came, and I met him, and it's very nice. But again, I wasn't aware of the significance that he has and of course I learned quickly but then also I wasn't in San Francisco that long yet and I felt like the work isn't quite in a place where I felt like moving to the next thing was right so we interviewed for over a year and Danny I have to give it to him but he was committed to me in a beautiful way and he would reach out On a regular basis, he's like, how are you doing? And eventually, after like a year, as well as he was interviewing me, I was also interviewing him because he said, oh, together we could do one of the great restaurants in the world. And I was visiting New York for a few times, and we looked at the restaurant, and you can feel it in the bones. And there's a lot of people out there who are telling you that they want to have the best restaurant in the world, but not understanding what it actually takes. And it also takes money to do it. And many of my friends have had bad experiences with some investor who is excited about restaurants for a minute and then the next minute not. And I really wanted to make sure I I knew that this was a big, big step because I saw chefs coming to New York like Ducasse, Robuchon, like big chefs who came to New York and failed and never really had a second chance. And so Not that I was anywhere on this level, but for me, coming to New York, I knew that if you get it wrong in New York, it's over. You're not going to get a second chance. And so for me, it was really important that everything was as right as it could be. And Danny just turned out to be an incredible partner, mentor, supporter. And there were a few years of where it was rough. And business wasn't good and we got negative feedback because also the restaurant was meant to be like, it was a brasserie when it first opened. It was open seven years by the time I arrived and it was like a brasserie serving steak frites and seafood plateaus. And then when I was coming and started to change the money, removing French fries from the money, all that, there was a lot of complaint. But Danny was there in support all throughout, we also went into the financial crisis of like 2008 and nine, which was tough. But we stayed on course and, and he stayed committed, which was essential to the story, how it all turned out.
0: Was there any moment in those early days that you wanted to throw in the towel?
1: Probably for the first three years, I thought I made the wrong decision. Because the restaurant was so big, it just felt so overwhelmingly big and no one knew who I was and it was very hard to hire talent and New York City can be so overwhelming. The food that I was cooking wasn't the food I knew I could cook. But there were so many other parts of like running a business and running managing. And it's quite culture shock coming from Switzerland from like a 30-seat restaurant to like this place of Eleven Madison Park. Maybe it wasn't three years, but maybe it was like a year and a half. I definitely had second thoughts if this was the right decision.
0: Eleven Madison Park goes on (laughs) to receive countless awards and accolades, including everything from stars, four stars from the New York Times, multiple James Beard Foundation Awards for yourself, Outstanding Chef for Outstanding Restaurant in America, Three Michelin stars and the number one spot on the world's 50 best restaurants list in 2017. I think you had mentioned when you were 24 and got that first Michelin star, not it didn't mean much, but you weren't like chasing the accolades at that point. Not that you're chasing them now, but do awards and accolades mean a lot to you?
1: They meant everything. They did. I knew it was such a powerful tool to motivate the team. What we're doing is like a complete team sport and it was a clear measure of how good we are and where we're going and it was very easy to sort of talk about it and i walked into 11 madison park at the beginning and said we're going to be the best restaurant in the world and people look at me like this guy's Insane. We didn't even really get the food to the right tables. I mean, we were so far away from any of it. But speaking these things out loud and, you know, they do somehow come to exist, I do believe in speaking things into existence. And I think awards are an easy sort of way. I I always understood that these were sort of these carrots that were chasing. And the best restaurant in the world, how can you be the best restaurant in the world? It's kind of a silly idea because there's so many great restaurants in the world. But, you know, it was this sort of game that we were part of and we're playing and we learned the rules and we learned how we can win it. And so, yeah, it became everything it became absolutely everything. Every morning I got up in the morning with the goal of having three stars, with the goal of being the best in the world. That's what we were after for sure.
0: Regarding the world's 50 best, you start your first time on the list, you're number 50. And seven, I think around seven years later, you make it to number one. What do you focus on to get to number one?
1: Even though that list isn't everything, it was everything for us. But even so, there's restaurants outside of that list that are incredible and arguably even better. But what it does do, that competitive mindset and that trying to get to the next level, it does improve the restaurant. Our restaurant improved dramatically over these seven years. Part of it is also the restaurant is sort of kind of changing what the role of the restaurant is. In the beginning, it was like a New York City restaurant that like people from Credit Suisse or businessmen would come have dinner and then eventually became an international destination. And so your program kind of has to change what that is. It's a different restaurant for someone who eats there once a year versus someone who comes every lunch or every dinner so the restaurant changed a lot over these years and it became more a longer meal also it was more about telling a story in the beginning we're kind of like more of a traditional fine dining restaurant eventually we felt like we're in new york city so the meal has to tell a new york story so we started researching I wrote a book called I Love New York and started researching the history of New York food culture and sort of what traditions were brought here and then what traditions were created here and how they evolved. And that was really interesting. But we're doing egg creams table side and we're doing deli courses and smoked fishes and all this stuff. So
0: mentoring cooks and staff, I take it as Probably pretty important for you.
1: Yeah, we had an amazing run of a lot of people who were together for a long time. I had an amazing partner who was running the front of the house, Will, and we were working together. He sort of started a few, like a year later after I did at 11 Madison Park, because I realized I needed to have a counterpart because I'm very kitchen focused. And so he was very dining room focused. Together, we were very powerful in like sort of both very competitive and we both wanted to win. We were on this amazing ride together for 10 years that then also we probably had 40, 50 people who were with us for a long, long, long time. I mean like decade.
0: I love seeing people who worked in your kitchen that go on, you probably don't love it at first, but eventually love it, that leave and go on to do great things. I feel like you didn't have your style of cooking, as you were saying, when you were 24, earning the star. And obviously, you've come to establish your style of cooking. But whether it's like the Lee Wolens of the world or the James Kent's or whomever, I love going to these places. Whether I know the person worked at EMP and I could see these commonalities or if I didn't know they worked there. And then later learn, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I could tell because this or that. And yeah. it, there's a number of chefs that you can tell, but not not hundreds, I don't think. Like, you could almost, you could tell when someone worked with jean George. Like yeah. there's those ingredients yeah. and yeah, things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. anyhow, it's pretty cool.
1: It makes me so proud to see people who have the people you just mentioned. And the list goes on. There, there's quite a few who worked with us for an extended time who were a great part of the team and then eventually moved on and have done incredible things. And it makes me so proud to see them evolve and at first they're probably a little closer to what I'm doing and eventually they grow into their own. It makes me so proud to, to see people who have worked with us who have taken some great lessons and have made them to their own success. So it's a beautiful thing and, and mentorship in that way. It's, a, it's something that makes you proud.
0: Yeah. It can't be easy to mentor Lee Wolin. I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 Love him. All right. So you go on and have other restaurants, including multiple nomads, you, Davies and Brook, in Claridge's Hotel in London, just to name some of them. But I'm curious, you're at the top of your game here. You go to partner with Claridge's Hotel. You want to incorporate this plant forward. I'll call it operation like you did at 11 Madison Park. They reject your proposal if that's the right way to put it. How do you handle that?
1: For me, it was was sad because I did love being at Claridge's and I worked there actually a long time ago and we created a beautiful restaurant and we had a beautiful team and it saddened me when they weren't open to this idea. Of course, also from a business standpoint, it was challenging to part ways. It was clear to me that my future in food is going to be plant-based and that's going to be my contribution for the next years to come and that I couldn't compromise on it. So it was sad and I feel like they missed an incredible opportunity. I was short-sighted. I think we left in good terms and definitely a little sad, but I stand by the decision and it was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. Good for you. We talked about your creativity. Obviously, you're incredibly creative. Two questions here. Where do you find inspiration and who inspires you?
1: You know, I'm very um, drawn to art my whole life. Art has, I probably, as I go through the world, I do pay attention to the food of the world and of regions but i probably pay even more attention of artists and museums and when i was very young i was brought to um, lorangerie in paris and that's where they have the monet water lilies and i think i was 10 years old and my parents brought me there and it's these two oval spaces that sort of wrap you in these water lilies and it's a museum that actually monet was part of designing it's like this beautiful natural light and very emotional place. And so when I was 10 years old, I was going there and that was, I started to cry. I started having tears running down, looking at these water lilies, and I couldn't tell if I was happy or sad or what the hell is going on. But it touched me so deeply that I knew that somehow this really speaks to me. The artistic language really speaks to me. So since then, I have followed many different artists. And so I'm very interested in whenever an artist sort of steps into a new space where no one has been. In fact, the Monet Water Lilies were some of that, where there were no landscape paintings at that time without showing any of the sky, like zoned in like that. He also left some of the edges of the canvases. Unpainted, which was radical at that point, and then of course like the early abstract paintings. They were around like 1920. The first abstract paintings. The idea of abstract didn't exist before, which is also fascinating. This is only a hundred year old idea. Before that, everything was something. The early of those paintings really interests me. Then artists like Lucio Fontana, who really questions painting as a whole, and was just slicing through the canvas. And I think it's really the artist's sort of mind that inspires me and constantly pushing into a new space. The fact that I am now sort of walking into this new space of doing fine dining with completely plant-based, I never dreamed of. Like, this is something you can't really plan. It really just, that opportunity just opened itself up somehow in a beautiful way. But in art, these are the very moment that interests me. And I think this is the closest example. In art is Philip Guston. Philip Guston was a figurative painter, then started painting abstract expressionism. He became one of the leaders of, of this movement. It took about 20 years to prove to the world that this movement of abstract expressionism is a real thing and something worth looking at. Because for the many, many years, it was just like talked down to. It was also a movement that really started in New York. So it took years and years and years to prove to the art critics that this was a real thing. And the moment sort of when the world started saying, okay, this is legit, this is the next great movement, Philip Gustin, one of the leaders, he started painting figures again. So he turned his back basically on this whole thing and people were pissed. People were like, really felt like he's turning his back. Then he started, he just painted figures for the rest of his life and eventually was sort of seeing some success but I think in his lifetime the art world never really celebrated him for the later works as they should have today is one of the greatest artists but in a way like for us was like fine dining the 50 best everyone in the beginning is like oh this list what does it even mean and we're like no this matters eventually we become number one and then we say well in fact we really don't want to cook with these things anymore
0: (laughs) yeah that's interesting totally that's super wild when was the last time you were inspired by a restaurant's food or experience
1: I mean, there's so many chefs and restaurants I respect. I think the restaurant I respect the most is, well, early on, it was Michel Bra. Michel Bra. you need to know that like in the 90s, a fine dining restaurant, every restaurant of the three stars basically had the same menu. Like they had the exact same ingredients. They had the sister on lamb, they had the blue lobster, they had the foie gras, they had the pigeon squab, they had a, a breast chicken. It was identical. One did with orange, the other one did with onion. It was wild. Like literally 80% of the menu is like identical. And then Michel Bra came out with this book in 98 that had all these, this vegetable salad on the cover. And when that came out, I was like, what is that? This is unbelievable. And so then I traveled there, and I really have I've had many meals at Michel Bras. And Michel Bras was sort of like the first sort of chef that really opened me up to like saying like anything is possible. It was amazing. And before that, it was like Robuchon, who was just so classic, but then... Perfection to the next level. But then Michel Brau really kind of broke down what classic cuisine was. But I think today, I think that the restaurant I look mostly up to is definitely Noma, because I think Noma is sort of a Gesamtkunstwerk where everything is just really together from the restaurant to the ingredients, the philosophy to the plates.
0: I haven't said this in a while for people listening, and I should say it more because I'm thinking of my, like, 20-year-old self, and I'm not 20 anymore. But when I would read a book, watch a TV show, listen to a podcast these days, for young listeners, and I know there are young listeners in culinary school and out of or career changers or whatever, I highly encourage you to write down and look up some of these different types of cuisine and dishes and chefs that Chef is mentioning Because these are like founders of an incredible time in cuisine in general. And I think a lot of times these days, rightfully so, we see it on social media, you know, holding our phone in our hand and watching chef's table on Netflix or whatever it is. And none of that's bad, but these people were inspired by earlier people. And as Thomas Keller likes to say, I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. And there's an incredible list that Chef has mentioned. And I encourage you to look into some of these people and the impact and influence they had on gastronomy. I digress.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I think today as really going, we're creating a new language of, of cooking on this level with purely vegetables. I think what we're finding is that we're taking much more inspirations from a lot of different cultures much more than ever before it could be you know traveling through india or thailand or where today almost most inspirations sort of come out of other going to oaxaca or like these places that have really this long history of sort of traditional cooking in a way these are the places that are most inspiring for me today
0: yeah this next thing i'm curious about i feel like we've kind of covered it In a way, but we talk with all different types of chefs, of TV food personalities, restaurateurs, et cetera, about how they stay relevant. It could be, again, someone who has a food TV show, someone who's a YouTuber, you know, in the food world, whatever that may be. How do you feel you stay fresh and innovative?
1: I just feel so um, blessed that today... I'm in this place where I have had all this success and today I have one restaurant, one of the most beautiful restaurants in the world. It's my life's work and it's my passion and I love cooking and food more than ever before. So I just feel so, so, so grateful that I get to do what truly is in my heart. I don't think so much about Staying relevant, I'm just blessed that I got to do what is my love and what's in my heart. And I feel like we have a lot to say and food is the language we say it through. And food is so central to so many issues we have in the world of like, it started with food insecurity during COVID where I really put my energy behind it. And we cooked over a million meals out of 11 Madison Park for people in need changed my life. Connecting with people in that way through food is a very powerful, it's just a very powerful thing. Now, cooking plant-based and sort of opening up that conversation, it's just so interesting. I am not afraid and fearless was always my thing. When I moved to America with two suitcases, I believe that everything comes from within. Louise Bourgeois, another artist that I admire, she has this, the spider is very central in her work, and she calls the spider the mother. And she talks about how the spider creates these beautiful webs with this beautiful silk. And when something happens to the spider web, the spider goes back and just tirelessly fixes it and makes it beautiful again. And everything from within when you realize that everything comes from within and that is your power then i don't think you need to really think about being relevant because you're just satisfied by the work
0: yeah i love that you Just hit upon some of the work you did during the pandemic to feed people in need, which is a perfect segue into talking about social impact. I think, you know, our podcast celebrates social impact with every guest because I truly believe in one of the main reasons we started this podcast was to showcase and shine a light on what chefs do in their community beyond a plate You get in their restaurant, learning how they do it truthfully keeps me inspired personally, whether it's Rick Bayless or Alice Waters or Andrew Zimmern or Brooke Williamson, whomever it is, they all have their own way. You are a co-founder of Rethink Food. I'm extremely fond of this organization. And you've said your work with Rethink Food to feed food insecure New Yorkers during the pandemic made you see your responsibility in even more powerful light. Food was and always will be our language to create change. Why was this such a priority for you?
1: I think I was lucky. Like Rethink was started by Macho Zviaku, who was one of our chefs. And we talked a lot about parts of ingredients that we weren't using. For example, the stems of a broccoli. We only use the rosettes and then the stems we make like family with it. But then there's only so much family staff meal you need. And so there is waste in every restaurant, in every kitchen. We thought we would take Was really his idea to start this non-for-profit organization and ask me to join and using foods from other restaurants to then cook meals for people in need, which was, you know, incredible. And so I was lucky that I was so tapped into what it means, what food insecurity means. When the city shut down because of COVID overnight, the restaurants shut down, I was tapped into that information that now, okay, the soup kitchens, are now no longer receiving products from restaurants also the food insecurity and this is a number that's shocking but it's in new york city has eight million people who live here and there's one million of them are food insecure this is not homeless people these are people with jobs two jobs three jobs they don't know how to get food on the table on a regular basis and so The 1 million out of 8 jumped to 2 million within 3 weeks, beginning of COVID.
0: that's just New York City we're talking about. It's
1: 25%. Yeah, it's crazy. And so these are shocking numbers. And so because I was just hearing these numbers, I just felt like I had no choice. We have this kitchen. We also get information from the farmers. Now they're sitting on a lot of food. Food gets wasted. So I just decided to turn 11 Madison Park into a commissary kitchen to cook for people in need. What was like incredible to see is that doing this work in a professional kitchen with professional chefs, I realized how efficient we were. So efficient, we could make delicious meals at low cost. It was very powerful. We were cooking at the height. We're cooking seven, 8,000 meals a day just like unbelievable, like with volunteers, you could never get to that level. And so I just was diving into this. I started bringing my team back for a year and a half. We're committed to this work and we went out into different neighborhoods to deliver the meals. I felt guilty because I felt like I didn't know a lot of New York I felt guilty that I've been here for almost 20 years and wasn't aware really of it. We then also got other restaurants involved. We sort of evolved what Rethink is and what it is today. It's like every restaurant has the opportunity to get involved. We created the Rethink certified so to make it possible for every restaurant to, to play a big part of it. We have enough food in New York City to feed everyone. That's not the problem. The problem is that we're wasting a lot and we're not communicating. So I'm really, really beyond proud of what Rethink has been able to do. For 11 Madison Park, I knew that when we reopen, we will have to continue this work in a big way. We decided that we would continue to cook meals. Obviously not 8,000 a day, but today we cook 500 meals every single day. We have a truck that is operated by the team of 11 Madison Park. So every, anyone who works on our team is rotating through the schedule of working on the truck or working in the kitchen. Because for me, this experience was so powerful that I want to share this as a benefit to everyone. I struggled for my whole life with the idea of cooking just for the one percenters and obsessing over an ingredient for weeks in a city where... Some people have no food. So I really wanted to find that balance. I said, 11 Madison Park has to continue to do this work. So every single day, we are giving away 500 meals for free, and it's completely funded by our customers who come every day. We just take it out of their meal price to do this work. So it's really. I'm really proud of this, and we have been able to create this sort of circular infrastructure economy while we get to create beauty and these magical moments for people who are fortunate to afford it, but also using that for people who are less fortunate and also spreading love in that way. so that's been a beautiful thing, life changing thing we just celebrated a hundred thousand meals since the reopening in the neighborhood. We're there every day. We've been embraced. People come up to me and say you changed our lives because you know, if you're a family of four and you get four meals every day for free, that money that you would have spent for eating now you can use for something else for your kids education toys school material whatever it's been an amazing it's been an amazing thing and i think we just scratched the surface because food insecurity is obviously one thing we can touch these, world, they, they, these neighborhoods through food in deeper ways with like community gardens, with education, with job opportunities, with what's available in the supermarkets. I mean, there are 10,000 people living in Queensbridge. It's the largest housing project in America. It's 20 minutes from here. The supermarket has like a four by four feet vegetable section, but there's an entire aisle on uh, cake glazings. It's unacceptable. It is unacceptable. And I think food is a powerful tool to bring change.
0: Oh, man. I could have talked about that for the whole episode. One thing. Thank you for doing that. Two, thank the staff in the restaurant for doing that. Three, you have an incredible message on your website that says, Every reservation at 11 Madison Park and every purchase on 11 Madison Home supports our work to curb food insecurity in New York City with Rethink Food and the 11 Madison Truck. Thank you for making this possible. That little message alone is incredible on your site with the links. That's like a case study. Like, I know, I'm sure Matt and team are creating a master toolkit of what you do (laughs) to to send around the country to other restaurants big and small. Was it challenging reopening a restaurant of your caliber during the pandemic? It's got to be challenging, no?
1: I think it's fair to say that last year was the most challenging time our industry has faced. Of course, it's been really hard and I think we had to dig really deep to a place that was uncomfortable, to a place that I didn't really ever thought I had to dig to, but this was the only way. There was really no other choice because we're talking about all these amazing things and we're doing good and we're doing plant-based, but also it's our livelihood. It is our livelihood and if this restaurant isn't full, we don't have a job there's 250 people working there and we all rely on this job. And so we really had no choice then then to dig deep because it's our life.
0: Yeah. It clearly had an impact on you. And I'm sure you learned a lot about yourself through that work with Rethink as you started to do it. But I think it's incredible that your staff rotates through the truck in different areas of this. How have they been as you've instilled that, if you will, have they, it must be rewarding for them too, yeah?
1: I mean, this work, and I'm sure you've done your fair share of it as well. And it is so good for your soul, you know, in a way like, yes, we're doing it to help. But in the way we help ourselves, it's just such beautiful work. I think everyone is touched by it and inspired by it and wants to do more of it.
0: You get more out of it sometimes than you put into it.
1: Yeah, that's how it feels sometimes.
0: Well, and this part, as I always like to say and probably ended last season, give what you can, whether it's your voice, your dollars, your time. They're all important. Carrying a message, donating, you, you may not be able to dig into your... Pocketbook and get, have ten dollars or a hundred, a thousand, whatever it may be. One dollar can go a long way. Volunteering your time can go a long way. A little social media post on behalf of a cause or organization can go a long way. So I always like to tell people, don't think you can't make a difference because you can. You just have to find the right way for you to do it and a cause that's meaningful for you. Thank you for all that work. Let's do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out. Name a smell in the kitchen you love.
1: I don't know. There's so many smells that I love in the kitchen. It's so That was such a scary thing about COVID, losing your smell because your smell is literally everything as a chef. Yeah, walking through the kitchen, it's like really, you would be blind if you couldn't smell. I don't know. I just love the smells in the kitchen.
0: In general. Okay.
1: Yeah. How about a smell in the kitchen you hate? Sometimes really late night, we clean things with vinegar and that's not the most pleasant. Yeah. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Cutting corners. I think cutting corners also when not admitting, like when you make a mistake, but you're trying to cover it up. It's okay to make a mistake, but I think it's important to own up to it. We can't cut corners. What makes you
0: happy in the kitchen?
1: Really the team and the friendships that I have been able to foster through the team.
0: You seem to take a strong stand for what you believe in. And I admire you for that. What you've accomplished is extraordinary. Is there anything you still want to accomplish that you haven't?
1: I think we're really in the middle of it. We're like in the middle of climbing this mountain that is is massive. And I do want to be able to make plant-based foods wildly accepted as a luxury, as a delicious thing, as Just so like really change how people view eating plant-based and really making people aware of how expansive and how beautiful it is. I think we're really in the middle of this work by no means half arrived.
0: Yeah. Love it. Chef, thank you for your time. I appreciate you making the time. I appreciate this conversation. It brought up some incredible points that I personally want to go back and dig into from these chefs to vegetables and you got me I love vegetables in general but you got me even more excited so thank you for that and thanks for all of your work with rethink and beyond because it is truly extraordinary
1: I really appreciate it thank you so much Andrew Uh, have
0: a good rest of the week and a great rest of the day as well thank you Thanks again to Chef Daniel Hum. Find him on Instagram at Daniel Hum. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-H-U-M-M. Or at 11madisonpark.com. To learn more about Rethink Food, go to rethinkfood.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Cappy's Plate or go to com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan-Me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And as always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you do have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gym. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.